You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me is my co-hostess with the mostest, who was just complaining that I crushed his soul, Paul Doroshenko. Hello. No, you're going <laughs> to jump right into my soul being crushed. Paul and I Co-host, like... I'm also your, uh, your uh, uh, co-singer in the Accutones. I see co-singer. your song is, uh, is climbing the charts. There's lots of people on Twitter really enjoyed it. Yep. Yep, we have many more songs coming out. It's just a matter of putting the videos together. Song-related adventures. Creative videos coming. Yep, so stay tuned to the Accutones. We're going to retire the podcast and just become, like, musicians and every week release a new song. And instead of putting an hour into the uh, into the podcast every week, we'll an, put an in... An hour? We'll put in, okay. You so, put in an hour. Okay, so instead of putting in three hours or four mm-hmm. hours into the podcast every week, we'll put 20 hours or 30 hours that we put into each video. Yeah, I'm sure we have the surplus of time somewhere. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of hours, we have a lot to talk about in this week's 45-minute episode. Well, of... let's get to it. All right, so the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, picking up on where we left off last week, because I think... You said, you know, Thursday when we were recording, we were talking about systemic racism and the Black Lives Matter movement, and you mentioned, if I recall correctly, something about by the time the podcast comes out, there'll probably have been more happening on this front. Yeah, well, but not what we expected, but it it happened shortly after the podcast came out, didn't it? It was Friday night or something? Yeah, Friday Friday night, night. and driving law-related. Yeah, it was a real driving law case because it was in a drive-through of a Wendy's and um, an impaired driving investigation. And I've defended lots of cases that started in the drive-through of a Wendy's, and I've had lots of mm-hmm. impaired driving cases over the years where my clients were in a drive-through, in a drive-through, asleep, um, not necessarily impaired. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're passing people. out in a I've, drive-through. I've, I've passed out driving. I've fallen asleep at a red light, and I wasn't impaired yep. from alcohol. It was not alcohol-related at all. Um, so one but, time uh, I was driving down to Seattle with my mom and we got detained at the border. And so we were about 90 minutes behind schedule and I was really tired and I was trying to get us to our hotel, but I was like falling asleep. And my mom's like, are you falling asleep? I'm like, it's okay. I can make it. She's like, do you need to pull over? And she had to keep me from like dozing off while I was driving down the I-5. Well, I'd fallen asleep while driving, but there was one day I was at the corner of Beatty and Smythe and I was driving to the office. It was in the morning, I think. It was a weekend morning, and I fell asleep at the lights. Wow. I don't think I was there long. My foot was still on the brake, but I fell asleep at the lights. Okay. No alcohol in my body. So the um, you can fall asleep is the point. And the, you know, this, these drive-through cases do happen. And the police directed this individual, of course, as we've all seen, to go off to the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they had him blow into a... Uh, preliminary breath tester. We call it an ASD in Canada. Had him produce his ID. Had him produce his ID, so he was identified, and there was no reason to believe it wasn't his car or anything like that. Yeah, gave him the keys, and he looked pretty good. Like, he looked very sober. He gave clear answers, um, but he provided a sample. It was over. And then when they went to arrest him, he resisted arrest. He was fighting back. 
and um, then it was a scuffle with two officers, and ultimately he gets up, he's got a taser, and he runs off with the taser. Rayshard Brooks. And he Say his name. fires it back. Rayshard Brooks. He doesn't fire it back. He fires it to nowhere. He goes to, he shoots it. He shoots the taser. But he doesn't shoot doesn't, it back at the police. He's just like randomly shooting just, it. Yeah. Um, it's not going to, it's not a deadly weapon. The police it's are also, a, remember, in their standard issue uniforms, including a bulletproof vest. I don't think a taser only, can penetrate a bulletproof vest. It's, it's, not, it's not a deadly weapon. It's not even a barely threatening weapon. I mean, a baseball bat is a, is a more deadly weapon. Yeah, I think in the police academy, don't you, they, like, tase each other so you get an idea so of what it's like? you get an idea of what it's like, yeah. So, and there's two of them. There was two of them. And um, rather than just letting him go, like, you know, you can you can de-escalate. You can also just choose to, to uh, no longer pursue or there's a foot chase. Um, and instead, the uh, officer shot him twice in the back and killed him. And now charged with murder. Now charged with murder, and, among other things. And the chief, um, the chief resigned, mm-hmm. which I think is the right thing to do for the community. Although the chief didn't do it, it's the right thing to do for the community. The officer was fired first, which was a good start. Yep. And I think people looked at this one and they thought that it was really different because it was a uh, a, a fellow who had that taser. And I really don't think that they should look at it that differently um, because it's, again, it's a taser. And this police officer had just finished um, eight hours of, uh, of training in, in use of force and uh, circumstances where it's appropriate. And here he drew his sidearm and yeah. killed, killed another person. Horrendous. And for, the, I all mean... for an impaired driving investigation where the person blew 100 milligrams. Yeah. Um, there was a comment on Twitter that really got to me. It, it made me so, so mad. Um, it said, fuck every lawyer who defends drunk drivers. It was some, you know, white male conservative in the U.S. responding to this incident, suggesting that somehow drunk driving defense lawyers are to blame for police killing a black man who is running away from them. Whom they've identified, whose car they have, whose keys they have. If you're that black man, Richard Brooks, and you're pulled over by the police, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, you know, I look fine, I feel fine. Yeah, I fell asleep. People do fall asleep. Um, and they're disheveled. The police officer described it. I overheard it when I l- listened to it as him having slurred speech. He did not display slurred speech in the, in the videos that I saw where you could hear him speak. Um, the, one must have, it must have crossed his mind at that point, I'm not going to be dealt with fairly. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be dealt with fairly. Well, you why? Know, I've, got, I've well, got these white officers, have got me. I'm, you know, I'm not postured. I just woke up. I'm a black man. I'm not going to be dealt with fairly. Yeah. And why would any person of color in the United States right now have any confidence when they're dealing with a police officer that they're going to survive that interaction or that they're going to be dealt with fairly through if they are not if they survive getting into the backseat of the cruiser are they going to get beaten up on the way to the detachment are they going to get roughed up on the as they're getting handcuffed are they going to even if they don't resist i mean do you do you really want to be handcuffed if you're a black male in the united states do you really want to be 
stuffed in the back of a police cruiser? Do you have any sense that you are going to be safe in those circumstances? The first thing you're thinking is run away. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that we're hearing a lot more about this and seeing this more, I think, in large part to do with the fact that social media has made it made it possible for us to see these videos of police brutality because people... Well, it's people are recording it with their mm -hmm. phones too and we've got CCTV and we've got this. This has gone on for a long time. We've had clients have reported things, all sorts of bad behavior by the police mm -hmm. and, you know, even we listen to it and we're like, well, okay, you know, that, that okay, if that's what happened, that's what happened, but we're not the arbiters of whether or not it's truthful but uh, and we don't always necessarily accept it. But I was yeah. going somewhere with this. Um, where I was going was, in the last month, I have had more clients express to me that their conduct, whether it was distancing themselves from the police or attempting to walk away or refusing to provide a sample or whatever, that their conduct that I'm asking them to explain that's in the police report was motivated out of their fear. And like, you know, every once in a while before that, I would get clients who'd say it, or they say also at the back of my mind, there's this, but it wasn't the primary motivator. But now it's like this primary thing for a lot of people that they think that they are in danger when dealing with police. And the it's vast a reason, majority... It's a reasonable of, fear. Yeah. It's a the reasonable vast, fear. The vast majority of the time in the police interactions that I've seen, they're not they're being asked to provide a sample into an ASD and they'll probably get an IRP if they blow over, right? But the fear is so reasonable. It's so understandable with everything going on in the world and everybody's got a heightened sense of anxiety just generally because of the pandemic that's going to exacerbate those things that are underlying for people who have, you know, people who are minorities dealing with police officers. So it's interesting to see that playing out. Well, when Mr. Dijansky was murdered at the airport by four RCMP officers, I can tell you, for a long time, I was scared of leaving my home. Uh, when the IRP scheme came out, and the police were given all of this power, and really with no scrutiny over it. There's still no. really no scrutiny. No over scrutiny. It. There's even um, less scrutiny there's now. There's less scrutiny now. Um, you know, I became very fearful of the police. In a police interaction when you're driving now, you can end up with an IRP, not having had anything to drink, uh, and not having done anything wrong. Um, and unfortunately, we have decided in the post-9-11 world, we made this decision that the police were saints and that we would just believe them all the time. And we've drifted along now for close to 20 years with this, you know, thank you for your service attitude toward the police, so uh, giving them so much uh, deference and reverence. Uh, and now people are starting to see just how bad that is mm -hmm. and how bad that practice is. And it's about fucking time that the police are thought of as people again and that we don't just give them a, a carte blanche, um, that they're finally being scrutinized and questioned. And I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the police officers who are out there, are good officers, trying to do their job all the time and are feeling vilified. I get that. I'm sorry. That comes with being a police officer sometimes. Yeah, and also, but, like, but, this is how every person of color you've ever dealt with has felt. But, well, that too. But 
the situation that you've experienced in the last 19 years was an aberration. That's not how we consider police officers generally. We try and consider them fairly, and we hope that police officers deal with everybody else fairly, and that they're not jerks when they're dealing with people. Uh, and unfortunately, they've been given the free reign for the, 19 years. The police officers I know and like have all told me, I have nothing to hide, and I will put, you know, everything that I did and everything that I said in an interaction out there with a person. And if the court finds that I did something wrong, I'll learn from it, and I won't do it again. Sure, but there's some officers who are really over the some top. Some do not want to learn. Over the top jerks. Mm -hmm. uh, and they think that that's the only way that they can control the situation. I'll tell you, you know, if you're a police officer and you're listening to this and you're thinking about an impaired driving investigation, which is what we deal with most of the time, uh, there's a there, there's an easy way to deal with it. Be, Be very, nice. very nice. Yeah. Uh, Drunk people love nice people. I know. And not just that. <laughs> Um, you get to be the good cop in the good cop, bad cop scenario because the bad cop's the ASD. The bad cop's the breathalyzer. The good cop's you. I don't know. I mean, look, I just, I'm required to do this. This ASD says this. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, he's yep. the bad cop. You know, Lance Platt, who I still have never had on this podcast, Lance Platt, friend of mine, uh, told me that he, um, told me that he, Pick it up, when Alan. he was a, sorry, I'm tired. My brain is slow. Um, when he was a drug recognition evaluation officer and he was doing the DRE tests, the arresting officers would bring people into the station. They'd be all riled up, angry that they were accused of being impaired by drugs. And Lance would be the nicest person ever. Oh, hi. Yes, I'm Dr. Platt. I'm here. You know, I, I don't know what happened with him. I just want to make sure that you're okay to drive. So I'm just going to do some tests. We're just going to do a couple tests and then you'll be free to go. And literally every time, the people would spill their guts about all the drugs that they'd taken, and Lance would end up convicting them. Writing it down. Anyway, yep, so you can be the good cop at the roadside um, very easily just by blaming the ASD. Uh, I know Grant Gokatro on some of the uh, videos that we've seen online, there was one of someone called him the robot vulture, um, which was fairly entertaining. I believe uh, in an early version of this podcast, you can find that clip. Yeah. The, um, uh, in that case, he just blamed the law. He said, look, it's just, this is the law. I have to apply I'm, the law. I'm sorry. I'm not taking your law. car. The government is. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's always a tough one. It's a little bit different circumstance when you're, you know, but you can also just rely on, and I don't know why he didn't in that circumstance to say, look, I, I, it's not up to me. It's that radar gun back there said that you were going, you know, 126, and this is a 60 zone, and I, I, I'm sorry, and when the radar gun says that, you know, I, I agree with the radar gun. <laughs> when the radar gun says that, I got to do this. All right, moving on. I want to talk about Zora. The Supreme Court of Canada's decision released today, finding that a mens rea component for a breach of a bail or undertaking condition um, requires either, uh, like, willful, willful breaching knowledge knowledge, not recklessness. Important, because... How is it important to driving law? Good question, Paul Doroshenko. The reason that it's important is one of the things that the Supreme Court of Canada said in the judgment that I find, frankly, intellectually dishonest knowing driving law. In Canadian law, we don't punish people for morally innocent behavior. 
So, like, if you're not morally responsible for your actions, we don't actually punish you for committing them. Which is straight up bullshit. Because... You're saying the Supreme Court of Canada is straight up bullshit? I'm saying that that, that, that aspect of the decision is wrong. Because we do punish people for morally innocent decisions. You and could the, go right through the criminal code and you'll find all sorts of things in there that, are, the not morally, biggest, that are not morally... The biggest example of this, and the one that relates to driving law, is care and control. Being behind the wheel of a motor vehicle, if you're prohibited under the criminal code or under a provincial order stemming from a criminal code conviction, or alternatively, if you are impaired. You yeah. sleep in your car, you commit an offense. Yeah. Um, and um, is it uh, is it immoral to sleep in your car when you're impaired? No, it's Instead not. Instead of driving? No, yeah. no, it's not. And, and, the, and I'm with you 100%. But offense is based on the, the notion that there's a, an inherent risk when an intoxicated or impaired person occupies a vehicle. that They'll suddenly put the vehicle in motion. But that's, ex that's exactly why we shouldn't penalize this. And every single person who gets charged with a care and control offense is somebody who's happened upon by a police officer when they're not in motion. It's not like the cops are waiting for them to make that decision or knock on the window, wake them up and find them a different place to sleep. Well, it's not like they stole that ring from the, uh, from the jewelry store and they still have the ring the next day. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, if they, if they weren't occasion, if it had it, but for the police officer, uh, finding them there, they would never have been any charge. Had they got, had they sobered up, slept a few hours longer before the police officer got there. Yeah, there would slept be, it off. Slept it off and was uh, down to 10 milligrams or whatever. Um, then so there no, would be no charge. You'd have to be down to 10 because if you were down to 20, I, they'd read it I, back. I, that's why I said 10. <laughs> that's why I said 10. But that is a complete throwaway nothing line from the Supreme Court of Canada, which mm. brings me back to, you know, we have to live with the law. We have no choice. That's, you know the agreement we make we sort of live in a society where we're bound by that agreement uh you could try and uh, emigrate i suppose if you disagree with it you are stuck with it because this is a democracy and we have to live by the law and the supreme court of canada says these things that are not consistent with the other things that they say and not consistent even with the law in my first year this is going back a long time now we're like 24 years way way back when i was in my first year of law school um, and, um, that was a, um, just a reflecting old person accent, by the way. Um, long time ago. Pick it up, Doroshenko. One of the first few days, uh, criminal law class, we were just talking generally and the, the teacher who was a Queens bench judge said, what, what makes it something criminal? I mean, I knew the existence of the criminal code because I had to go buy it already. But they, they, she asked, what makes something criminal? And I, you know, looked around the room and I was one of the few people who was willing to speak because I was a dang fool. Um, and I said, uh, I said, well, I mean, it's something that we generally all agree on is fundamentally immoral. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, no, no. It's got nothing to do with morality. There's all sorts of things in the criminal code that are, that are not immoral and there has been over the generations. It's got everything to do with what they decide is in the criminal code. And that's it. So when the yeah. Supreme Court of Canada opines that there's some other test, to my mind, they are introducing the possibility <clears throat> of a charter challenge. What? 
I hadn't considered constitutionally challenging the morally blameworthy conduct of being in care and control of a motor vehicle while you're prohibited, not me, nope. Yeah. Now we sound like we're from the South, sitting in one of those Cracker Barrel restaurants on the front steps. I've never been to a Cracker Barrel, but I hear amazing things. I hear that there's like a fountain of that nasty, like, cheese sauce that they eat in the U.S., and I really need to check that out. Just a matter of time. We should look for a Justin, franchise. open the border so I can go to Cracker Rail. We, we need a franchise. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, just wanted to spend a brief moment on Zora because I think there's a teeny tiny little crack to challenge some things in a way that hasn't been challenged before. And I like a crack yeah. in the door. Moving there's on. a great song about Mikhail Gorbachev. It goes, Gorba, Gorba, Gorba the chef. And I've been thinking, Zora, Zora, Zora the chef. Paul, you're going on too many tangents today. Sorry. I'm banning you from tangents. We have a lot to talk about. We're already 20 minutes in. People keep, are bored. Let's keep moving on. <laughs> so next issue I wanted to talk about was a recent BC Court of Appeal judgment mm. uh, from this week mm. in which the Court of Appeal dealt with the issue of breach um, in your insurance conditions for intoxication. We, Case- talk, we talked about this at the when the Supreme Court decision came out. We spoke about this on the podcast. No, we didn't. Yeah, very briefly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Hammond. And you may have had Roy on about it. And Insurance Corporation of British Columbia. A recent decision, uh, if you want to look it up, it's 2020 BCCA 170. And essentially, Mr. Hammond uh, was driving towards a construction zone, not paying enough attention, doesn't brake, slams into the cars in front of him. Not very smart. Officer comes, sees some indicia of impairment, makes an ASD demand, he blows a fail on the ASD, they take him back to the detachment... Very quickly, in order to make an ASD demand, you have to have a reasonable suspicion that the person has alcohol in their body in these circumstances. This was like at least seven years ago. 2009. Um, yeah, well, so a decade a, ago. A decade ago, 11 years. So, um, under, uh, but you do not believe that the person is impaired by alcohol. Okay. So, um, goes back to the detachment, has to provide samples into the approved instrument. Before the first sample's taken, he regurgitates something, so the officer restarts the observation period. Now, the officer's testimony at the trial was he restarted it at 3.51, but his notes said that he restarted it at 3.53, and he wasn't cross-examined on this. Civil trial. Civil trial, yes. Somehow he won the criminal trial. Probably the Crown didn't proceed on the 08 because Probably. of the burping. And the ASD rendered the impaired, difficult to prove, blah, 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 accident, etc. Anyway, so then... The officer takes a second sample and gets a reading, and he is found in breach by ICBC. Challenges the finding of breach. two readings of 170. Well, 1171, 180, but yeah, close enough. Challenges the finding of breach, and ICBC gets an expert opinion from Dr. Carolyn Kirkwood, who says, oh no, the first reading's fine because the second reading was more than... 15 minutes from it, and it was within 20 milligrams percent of the first reading. And so you can, you know, be confident that the second reading was accurate, and it lends weight to the reliability of the first reading because the second one was was good, and they're close. Within the accepted margin of closeness. Yeah, and so it went to the Court of Appeal. Uh, first it went to BC Supreme Court, and yeah, BC lost. Supreme Court judge said, yeah, you know what? Two readings and, you know, 170, 180, uh, ASD fail, um, some symptoms. 
that's enough to find the person in, in breach. There's a test, and it's a not a bad test. I think it goes back to like 1981 in an ICBC case, and it's restated, I think, in this decision, where it basically like gives you a, a lot of benefit as a driver because you have to they have to demonstrate the final step of the test is that you're you can no longer capably operate a motor vehicle as a result of the fact that you have that alcohol in your body. And it's almost presumptive, but not really presumptive at 160, because you can still impeach the results, right? Mm-hmm. So the Court of Appeal makes a number of, to me, troubling findings. And I don't mean legal. well, I do mean legally troubling, but I just mean I'm, fi- I'm troubled by the findings. Um, one of them, uh, although they are fact-specific. Hot bench. <laughs> unanimous hot bench. Unanimous hot bench. One of them was that it's super okay um, to rely on the first reading where or where there was evidence that there was 15 minutes about regurgitation after the regurgitation, even though the officer's notes say something different. Now, part of the problem here was that he the officer was never cross-examined about this discrepancy, so he didn't really get the opportunity to you know, be challenged on it, and that's unfortunate, but I'm sorry, how can you say that, like, there's this discrepancy in the evidence between what the officer just volunteers at a trial, like, seven years later, a specific time for a regurgitation incident in an impaired investigation that happened a decade ago, or more than a dec, or the, more than five years ago, and then say, yeah, but it, it's, it's okay. Bothers me. Well, I see a few problems with that, and I'm surprised it wasn't put to Carolyn Kirkwood or another expert that would have been called for well, the defense. this is another problem. The defense never called their own expert, and the report of Carolyn Kirkwood was admitted, and she wasn't um, asked to testify. Oh, really? She wasn't asked to testify? She wasn't asked to testify. And, oh, and, why didn't they ask her to testify? Because there's all sorts of things you could have put well, to her. And like with the her, fact that when one person burps once, they usually burp more than once. But also, with her with her comment about the second reading being, being proof of the first, the Court of Appeal said, look, there's no case law here that says you can't found a breach on a single reading from an approved instrument, because the law doesn't require two like it does in the criminal context. Which is fascinating, because if she had been cross-examined... She would have said, if you don't have two, it's garbage in, garbage out. Yes, we don't the, accept it for the scientific, scientific principle of a proper breath test. Yeah. Put the manual to her, right? Well, not just the manual. The Alcohol Test Committee recommendations and the accepted, accepted scientific, scientific procedure, procedure around the around world. breath testing. Yeah, yeah. So that... Was but, but also the me. fact that I and I never I never got this far that it was a one seventy one eighty mm-hmm. so you've got a rising so curve rising curve and is, she extrapolated back from the one seventy well it, the problem how is, do you back extrapolate if there's a rising curve when there's an accident there's usually more time if there's a rising curve it suggests one of two things it suggests either the pre- person was bolus drinking in other words drinking mm-hmm. moments before the accident which means their blood alcohol concentration may not have been uh, over 80 milligrams at the time they were driving, or mouth alcohol, like they're a person who's experiencing regurgitation, experience it once, you've got it once. It's, this you know, could happen many times. Actually, a third phenomenon that also could have been put to Kirkwood, and that's that in situations of stress, people with undigested alcohol in their stomach can plateau and then experience a large dump of alcohol, resulting in a sudden peak in their blood alcohol concentration. There's also a fourth phenomenon. That could have been put to Carolyn Kirkwood. Post-driving consumption? No, that oh. would be the fifth. The fourth oh. is uh, if he's smoking. 
gastric emptying. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your blood alcohol concentration rises uh, when the alcohol leaves your stomach and goes into your small intestine. Very little absorption happens in your stomach. And if you're smoking, uh, that's one of the reasons you don't you may not gain weight as quickly, um, is the sphincter on your stomach um, remains closed until a um, period after your cigarette. So it will hold food or whatever else, alcohol in your stomach longer, gastric emptying, hmm. delayed. So there's that. Um, the, lots um, of reasons. There's lots of reasons. And it's also a BAC Data Master C case. Should have uh, talked to me about that because there's a reason. Invalid samples. Yeah, we can slide um, the mouth alcohol by. Well, you can also have the valve problem. Yeah. And the the breath alcohol reading can theoretically be increased by 100 milligrams in 100 milliliters. That's what I said. Yeah. But not in a very coherent way that would make sense to anyone but you. Um, so anyway, that. That was an issue. But, but it was also, pretty good. It was a pretty good instrument when it came to detecting mouth alcohol. Tangent. Sorry. I'm the tangent police. Also concerning was the, like, the court's lack of analysis whatsoever on why you can have one sample to confirm a breach. Because the court only referred to two cases for this, both of which arose in the ADP context, which actually follows a specific statutory scheme. And so the ADP context, if those cases had been analyzed by the court, and the court's like, Nobody made submissions about these and we're not going to analyze them. But look, it's been used in the regulatory context. Yes. But if you read the legislation and you read it's the cases. Legislated it's legislated regulatory context. It's not, a, yeah. it's not a, a negligence issue. It's not an insurance issue. It is a, a highly regulated, regulated administrative Licensing scheme. privilege. Spelled out in the Motor Vehicle Act. That is... Uh, careless of the Court of Appeal to go that route. And also arguable that those cases are not, in fact, correctly decided based on more recent interpretations of the provisions of the ADP legislation that were at issue there. So troubling to me that they just kind of throw out there that there doesn't seem to be any problem with this, but they're not going to analyze it's the so issue. They didn't call, call Kirkwood or Look, their man, own expert. Tis not for me to... Question the strategic decisions of another lawyer. There's probably well, yeah, a they, reason. They, yeah, but they raised the Brown and Dunn issue there. Um, mm -hmm. It made not much sense arguing that the whole Brown and Dunn issue wasn't dealt with properly and then not having followed that rule. But I don't know what well, maybe the instructions... We weren't there. We weren't there. We haven't what, read the transcript. We don't know what the instructions from the client were. Right? I haven't read the transcript. It's There's problems with the decision. However, there's I will one say more thing. This. Go ahead. Go. The ASD. Oh, yeah. So in criminal law, you cannot use an ASD result to as evidence of proof of impairment. In this case, the court had before it this issue of the fact that the trial judge was like, oh, yeah, ASD result, totally admissible, relying on that to bolster my findings of impairment here because ASD means 100 milligrams percent. And this was argued. And the Court of Appeal just says, well, this isn't a criminal case. But that completely neglects that the only reason that that evidence came into existence was as a result of a violation of the charter, right? ASD testing proceeds on the basis of a violation of, of it's a warrantless search, 8, 9, 10A, 10B. By virtue of yeah. The criminal code. Saved because of use immunity. And. I don't think that you can say it's okay to admit the ASD in the civil context when dealing with a state-regulated insurer as evidence to prove impairment 
when that evidence was gathered under the understanding that it's not admissible for that purpose. And I see this as creating, and why I say this decision troubles me, I see this as creating a legal incentive for people to refuse to comply with ASD demands. Because now, as a lawyer... In an accident. As a lawyer, if somebody says, should I blow into the roadside breathalyzer? Well, I can't advise them to not blow into the roadside breathalyzer. I am legally obligated to tell them that if they've been in an accident and they do, the roadside breathalyzer could be used to breach them on their insurance coverage. Their jeopardy is now different. So yeah. they've got the criminal, they're facing a criminal charge of refusing to provide a sample and that may or may not stick. On top of that, they're facing the potential of a ICBC uh, denying their insurance coverage on the basis of the readings that they obtain on the ASD and maybe subsequent readings that are justified on the basis of the ASD and consequently you may have a half million dollars worth of, of uh, cash that you wrote. So you might be more you know, inclined to refuse if that is your thought process. What if you give somebody a debilitating injury? You, you make them paralyzed from the neck down and a serious brain injury, and the person in your car was like a, a stellar surgeon. Now they can never do their job again. They were making $400,000 a year, and you're on the hook if you're breached. Why would you blow? Like, the law is supposed to incentivize you to comply by making the consequences of not complying the same and or worse, as the criminal code makes it worse, $2,000 fine in the criminal code. Then complying. And now, you know, I'd rather pay a $2,000 fine than $400,000 a year for the rest of some guy's life. Yeah, I mean, even if you are if you accept the injury, even if it's a, a um, impaired or a... Uh, refusal causing bodily harm, which is essentially what we have in the criminal code now, which really, is it morally wrong to refuse? Hmm. In any event, uh, re <laughs> now morality is in yeah, You'll it. probably succeed on the refusal count. You know, you'll have defenses you, and you, you you'll may win or, the criminal you refusal. You may or may not, but even if you, even if you don't, you're better off to take the $2,000 fine on that because that doesn't necessarily mean a breach. The criminal conviction does not necessarily mean a breach. On right? a refusal. On a refusal. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, interesting. Anyway. Because it doesn't mean that you're enabled and capable of operating. But you violated a provision of the criminal code related to your driving. Yeah. Is it related to your driving? Well, these would be the things that you would argue. Yes, that's my point. You're, anyway, it potentially incentivizes people to refuse. And I think that that's wrong. And I don't understand why the court of, and their analysis on this is like three paragraphs. And it's mostly dealing with what the ESD result means and whether there was evidence of it. Well, my other big concern, of course, as you know, is an ASD. ASDs, I mean, you've got somebody who's, who you have a positive indication has a mouth alcohol issue who regurgitates mouth alcohol and you've got an ASD result. I'm sorry, the ASD result is garbage. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of problems there, but a big one that I think we really need to think about, um, and I think really needs to be thought through by counsel who are dealing, paging Eric McCracken, um, with ICBC files, um, you know, the implications of this and perhaps asking the court to revisit it, particularly given the sort of per incurium nature of that determination by the Court of Appeal, arguably it's not that binding and something should be done about it. Well, my bigger concern is the fact that the caps don't exist on this type of claim. Whereas the caps mm -hmm. exist in ICBC cases on 
all sorts of other claims now, there's no cap on the claim now where you're going directly after a driver where you're alleged, alleged to, be to be impaired. So, and as we've talked about before, this is going to increase the number of people who are making false allegations of impairment at the other person because you get more rights. There's huge motivation. Huge motivation. The that. entire like ICDC this really context. It. This really this decision in conjunction with the changes to ICDC where you directly sue the person for the breach because you're not capped is going to generate so much bad litigation. <laughs> like the courts are going to end up filled with these cases where everybody's alleging a breach so they can try and collect more money, especially if the person owns a house, you know, because then there's the pockets. Yep. Yep. It's a big deal and it's going to have far reaching implications. Huge. And I don't like where it's going. I also don't like a general trend. And this ties into what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast and that comment that that individual made on uh, Twitter that People think that because somebody drives with alcohol in their body, that they deserve whatever is coming to them. And I don't like that. No. And this is why drunk driving lawyers exist. First of all, because somebody who's not a drunk driving lawyer wouldn't look at that judgment and think that that ASD issue could have far-reaching implications. But somebody who is a drunk driving lawyer... Or the, or the mouth alcohol issue when it comes to the samples, or the bolus rising samples, mm -hmm. um, or the BAC Data Master C giving inaccurately elevated samples. Yes. Now, that we're all upset and angry and Settle down. Worried, Settle down, folks. Worried about the future of our it's legal time system. time to move into. We have to remember that there's always a moment of levity with the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> driver of the week oh this is a good one because so it, it's the one that you're going to use because it's kyla texted me so we were looking at one that was a new zealand police officer going on a, a ridiculously high speed with another senior officer just to go to a meeting um, 150 kilometers an hour using the lights and the cruiser and everything not ridiculous enough not ridiculous enough we have this one which is better woodstock police in Ontario, uh, received several reports of a Porsche that had a makeshift cart tied to the back, pulling a hot tub down the highway in Woodstock, Ontario. This is fantastic. So it looks like a Porsche 944, so an old car, you know, at least 30 years old. Uh, but it looks good. You know, it's probably the classic Porsche 944. And uh, it's got a hot tub on what looks like a box dolly. It's like a little Attached. handmade wooden cart. No, no, it's, it looks like a metal box dolly, the no, type you wooden. walk with. Is it wooden? It's oh, wooden. Okay, oh, even better. Um, and it's not attached with a trailer hitch or anything. Of course, there's no suspension. It's not a trailer, right? Nope. <laughs> and it's, it's, it seems it's to just be just sort of hanging wood, wood planks. Out, out the hatch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the hatchback is open. 944 is a front engine, Audi engine car. The hatch a, is propped open with more pieces of wood. That's good. Well, <laughs> the, I mean, it's an old enough car that that, that compressed cylinder is not going to be able to hold it up. So uh, driving down the highway, on, was it the 401? No. Uh, it's all I, I mean, I don't know, uh, Ontario well enough on Dundas street West near 11th line. Okay. All right. 
but uh, yeah, it looks like highway. It um, looks like two lanes in that direction, highway, and the police have this vehicle pulled over with a hot tub on what looks like a box I dolly. It. I love it. <laughs> apparently, it's a homemade box dolly, not a trailer. You you have a Porsche. You have enough money to buy and maintain a Porsche. No, it's you, an old one. It I doesn't mean, matter. You have to maintain it. You have enough money to buy a hot tub. You don't have enough money to get it delivered? What got me was that it takes a few people to get a hot tub on a dolly. Uh, and you have to like decide to take the hot tub from somebody mm -hmm. and get it yourself to take it to your own home, presumably if you are so excited about the hot tub. You're not delivering it for somebody else, right? No. You would think that someone in that line of people would say to themselves, you know what, this isn't a trailer, this is a Seems like a bad dolly. idea. <laughs> yeah. Who sold it to them and was like, this makes sense. Nineteen ninety nine uh, an hour you can rent a U-Haul. Or a day, a day, sorry. Nineteen ninety five a day you it's can rent a U-Haul. It's actually not nineteen ninety five No, it's ridiculous because like... It's like $37 for this, and the other yeah. thing. Yeah, no, per kilometer. But whatever. Say $100 you can rent a truck. Sure. Uh, you probably, $150 you'd get somebody to deliver it. You can find a dude on Craigslist to deliver it for 50 bucks. Yeah, no doubt. Hundo P. No doubt. So, uh, but yeah, this was uh, an interesting thing. And YouTube has really enlightened me to the uses of a dolly. Because I've seen all these <laughs> Do not cases. Get inspired. All these cases from Russia where people have put a dolly under one wheel. So recently I was here in the Richmond office and the food bank had parked my... Um, parked their van behind our door and I needed to get to move my Buick out and I was here on the weekend and I thought gee you know I could jack it up and put it on a dolly just like they do in Russia that. I didn't do it I didn't do it but I thought it did you just get the food bank's truck towed no no I left it I was uh really put out because I had a bunch of work to do and I sent them an email and they apologized and uh, we also sent them a thousand dollar check Wait, so they wronged you and you gave them $1,000? It's more complex than that. <laughs> but no, nobody that wrongs me gets my money. Yeah, you know what? It's the food bank. Okay. It's the food bank, and we're in a pandemic, so. That's fine. Anyway, that's your ridiculous driver of the week. Please go to the internet. Just Google Porsche hot tub. I'm sure you'll find it. If you find something else that's a Porsche and a hot tub, it's probably worth looking at anyway. This is worth looking at. There's video of people driving by it, and then there's still shots taken from the video. And yeah. when you see the dolly, uh, you will uh, you will be astounded. Will and, and again, like ever so slightly surprised with human ingenu ingenuity. And hopefully next week we'll have another feat of human ingenuity behind the wheel. But you're going to have to wait a week for that. In the meantime, if you need to contact us about a driving law related issue, give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.